Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I am Vineet Kiar Khicha, a Johnson MBA student and Vice President of Red Talks for the Johnson Communications Club. I am pleased to introduce this episode with Associate Professor Vanessa Bonds of Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. The interview focuses on her research in social psychology and applications in the workplace, including ways managers underestimate their own power, romantic relationships in the Me Too era, and why interactions with police often don't go as expected. I hope you enjoy the conversation and as always subscribe, share, leave a review and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host Greg Wool. Vanessa Bonds is an associate professor in the Department of Organizational Behavior at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Professor Bonds received her PhD in social psychology from Columbia University and her AB in psychology from Brown University. Her research focuses broadly on social influence and the psychology of compliance and consent. In particular, she examines the extent to which people recognize the influence they have over others. Her research has been published in top academic journals in psychology, social psychology, management, and law, and has been covered in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and NPR. She is an associate editor at the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology and teaches Introduction to Organizational Behavior, morality at work, and negotiations here at Cornell. Professor Vanessa Bonds, thank you for joining us on Present Value. Thanks so much for having me. That was a very comprehensive intro. I appreciate it. Oh, we appreciate you being here. Now, much of your work centers on the surprising influence we have on one another. In what ways are our predictions about influence often wrong? It's interesting because for a long time, researchers were kind of uncovering these ways in which we tend to be overconfident. So you may have learned a business goal, for example, that we tend to be overconfident in our ability to beat the stock market, or we tend to think that we're smarter than the average person. One of the expressions is that the average person thinks they're better than the average person, which is obviously impossible. And so for a long time, we kind of thought that people were overconfident across the board. But my research and some other research that has come out over the past about decade shows actually that we can be underconfident in certain domains. And one of those domains seems to be the interpersonal domain and specifically in our ability to influence other people. So, for example, we tend not to realize how much other people notice us, which means we may not realize how much they copy us or do the things that we do. We tend to think that people judge us more harshly than they do and like us less than they do. And my research shows that we tend to think that people are more likely to say no to us than they actually are when we ask them for things. And your research has also suggested that power leads people to dissociate beliefs about causality from beliefs about responsibility. How does this tendency affect interactions between managers and their directs? Yeah, so there's a long history of research on power showing that people who are in positions of power tend not to sort of appreciate the perspective of lower power individuals. So if I'm your manager or I have some sort of control over your outcomes, it's at the end of the day just not as important for me to get inside your head as it is for you to get inside my head. And so I tend not to sort of take your perspective as much as you might try to take my perspective and understand my motivations and and emotions and things like that. 
So for that reason, when a powerful person who is by definition harder to say no to than the average person ask someone to do something, so like when a manager asks a subordinate to do something, they don't realize the pressure that they're putting on that other person even more than sort of the average individual. So because they're not sort of taking that person's perspective and recognizing how hard it would be to say no to your boss who's asking you to do this thing, you tend not to realize that that person's not going to say no to you. And even if they felt really uncomfortable with something you were asking them, they may just go along with it anyway. Can this mean that managers might take compliance on the part of a direct as that direct's implicit support of the manager's unethical request? Yeah, so there's it's pretty easy actually to find examples of situations where someone in a position of power over somebody else asked them to do something unethical or inappropriate and then turned around and said, well, they did it, they could have said no, right? This kind of obliviousness to the idea that that person really didn't feel as if they could say no in that instant. So there's examples, for example, of uh, you know Jeff Skilling at Enron Clearly, he was orchestrating a lot of the unethical behavior that took place there, but then he would famously say afterwards that he wasn't responsible. So he kind of just didn't take responsibility for the fact that people were following his directives or what they thought he wanted them to do. There's another example of a basketball coach at Rutgers back in the 90s who asked his players to play strip basketball. Basically, they had to do a free throw contest and for each free throw they missed, they had to strip. And he eventually was sued for this. And he would talk about this as, well, it was just a fun thing. If they felt uncomfortable, they shouldn't have participated. But if your coach, right, you're, you're an NCAA player and your coach is telling you to do this, you don't actually feel like you have a choice in the matter. And yet, because he and because Jeff Skilling were in these positions of power, they kind of didn't realize the extent to which people couldn't say no to them. And it really wasn't those that other person's choice in the end. So... It seems that part of being a manager is underestimating the extent to which that power dynamic can affect the response of a direct. If one of our listeners was a manager looking to reduce that level of disconnect, what approach might she take? Well, I mean, a big problem is that we have a hard time getting out of our own heads. So by just the the way we're made physically, right, we're always looking outside of our own eyes at other people. And we tend not to recognize how we look to others. And so any kind of exercise you can do when you're asking for something where you try to get out of your own head and view the situation as a third-party observer can be really helpful in sort of helping you to understand the power dynamics there. We tend to forget that we're the ones with power. When we're in a power position, we could kind of forget how hard it is to say no to ourselves, right? We don't necessarily always feel like, oh, No one can say no to me. I have all this authority. We may even doubt it and not realize that our subordinates feel like they can't say no. So anything you can do to sort of take your head out of your, get yourself out of your own head, view the situation as an outside observer and kind of say, oh, look at this power dynamic that's there. This person probably wouldn't be able to say no to this. I'm going to make sure they actually feel comfortable with what I'm asking. It turns out there's a more hopeful side to this disconnect. People seeking assistance are likely to underestimate the level to which others, even strangers, are willing to lend a hand. How have you studied this phenomenon? That's right. So my colleague, Frank Flynn, who I met back when I was a graduate student at Columbia University, we actually started thinking about the difficulties of saying no within the pro-social domain, so within the domain of help-seeking. 
And the way we started out looking at this question was asking people to ask other people for favors. So we would bring participants into the lab and we would send them out onto campus and we would say, okay, go and ask, you know, as many people as you need to before you get three people to agree to loan you their cell phone. And they would go out and they would actually do this and they would get someone's cell phone, call us back in the lab, say, oh, I have this person's cell phone. And they would keep track of how many people they had to ask before three people would, would agree to this request. And what we did is before they went out and made these requests, we said, how many people do you think you're going to have to ask before you get three people to do this, this favor for you? And what we found time and time again with a bunch of different requests is that people think they're going to have to ask a lot more people than they actually do. They think that people are going to say no to them much more frequently than they actually do. And so they don't realize how hard it is for someone to say no to you when you're asking for, you know, a simple favor when you're asking for help. Does the existing relationship between the asker and the askee affect the likelihood of that request being granted? It's interesting because we think that. We think that if we ask someone we know really well, if we ask a friend for a favor, that they're going to be much more likely to help us out than if we were to ask, you know, someone we don't know very well, an acquaintance or a stranger. But when we've gone out and tested this, it turns out that our ideas about this difference don't quite match the reality. So we think that there's going to be this huge difference between asking friends and strangers in terms of whether they're likely to agree to help us. But in fact, there tends to be a pretty small difference. So for example, we ran a study where we came up with, we've done so many different variations of these, these favor request studies. So, you know, we've had people ask for charitable donations. We've had them ask to fill out questionnaires. We were kind of curious, how far can we push this effect? What if we just ask for something totally random? So we asked people to ask their friends or strangers to just count a jar of beans. We were like, let's just have them engage in bean counting, this most random favor we could think of. So we gave them these jars of hundreds of pinto beans, and we said, okay, you're going to tell people that you need these counted, and you're either going to ask people you know well, your friends, or you're going to ask strangers. And we had, once again, we asked them, you know, how many people are you going to have to ask before you get two people to count these hundreds of beans in this jar? And they thought there was going to be a huge difference that almost all their friends would say yes, but strangers for the most part would say no. But in fact, when they went out and asked people, the rates that friends and strangers agreed to this request were actually very, very, very similar. Interesting. Now, it seems that just asking for help gets a, a yes far more often than, than we expect it will. But sometimes you ask and the answer is no. Are there factors that increase the likelihood of a request being granted? So the big things that we've looked at are how you ask, so whether you ask in person or whether you, for example, ask over email, and whether you ask directly or indirectly. And it's interesting because, once again, our intuitions about what's more likely to get us a yes tend to be very different than reality. So when we ask people, if you ask for something face-to-face, -face, and we ask other people if you ask for this over email, there's no big difference in what they predict the response rate is going to be. So people think, on average, that asking for something over email is going to be about the same as asking for something face-to-face. -face. And you can imagine, you know, in an email, you can craft your words perfectly and you can make the request just right. So people kind of think you, they have more control in some ways. It's also a lot more comfortable to ask over email. But when we actually have people ask in these two different ways, the effect of asking face-to-face -face is just dramatically more effective, right? It's In one study we found it was 34 times. You were 34 times more likely to get a yes if you asked face-to-face -face than over email. So that's been a big factor. 
Another factor is this direct versus indirect way of asking. So people tend to think that the better way to ask is to ask indirectly, to be sort of, they think it's more polite, kind of hint at what you want, you know. So if I needed to borrow someone's phone, I would say, oh, I really need to make a call, but my phone's dead, right? There's no actual ask there. You just wait for the other person to sort of offer. But when you actually put people in that situation and they either sort of hint like that or they say to someone, hey, could I use your phone to make a call? People are much more likely to agree to this direct request, even though we think that, oh, the better way, the polite way is this indirect request. So has your research uncovered any of the specific mechanics of why face-to-face asks are more effective? Does it have to do with increased feelings of empathy? Why is it that face-to-face is more effective than email? So in one of our studies, we looked at the question of trust. And so in that study, people were only asking strangers, and they were either cold emailing strangers or asking strangers face-to-face. And in that case, what we found was the sort of mechanism behind the difference was that when you're face-to-face with someone, you know this is a real person, this person seems trustworthy. But when you just get an email from a stranger, you have doubts. You're not sure exactly what they're asking, and there's, there's less of a trust in what's being asked. But we also think that there's likely other mechanisms going on as well. So one thing that we think may be going on is that, as we talked about earlier, it's really hard to say no to somebody. And that's especially true when you have to look them in the face and say no to them. When they're standing right in front of you asking for something, it's a lot harder to say no than if you can sort of carefully craft an email back saying, actually, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And when you have a little more space. So we think that's also likely going on, but we don't yet have any empirical evidence for that. It's really interesting because if you look at what's happening right now in 2020, there are many organizations that are striving to define the future of work in a new way, removing what could be perceived as a constraint of co-location and preferring to use applications like Slack to share information that previously would have been emailed or delivered face-to-face. This trend may even be accelerated right now in a post-COVID-19 world. Given your research, what are some likely benefits and costs to such shifts? So one thing that's interesting is that when my former graduate student and I have looked at what happens to these kinds of effects when you know the person, right, as I mentioned, the email effect is really specific to strangers. But when you actually know the person, we don't get the same effects. Then you actually do feel more obligated to agree to someone than we would expect when, even when it's over email. And so one of the things that a postdoc at London Business School and I have been looking at recently is the extent to which our constant connectivity through email and Slack, and right now in response to COVID, you know, this kind of merging of work and life in the same space and constantly being sort of connected and needing to show that you're on all the time, that in fact, a lot of these sort of concerns about responding to someone, agreeing to what somebody wants, are causing people to sort of lose their work-life balance. And so what happens is I'm at home, I'm sending emails at all sorts of hours of the day, and the people receiving them feel like they can't say no to the things I'm asking. They feel like they have to respond right away. And we sort of unintentionally put pressure on people to keep working and keep getting back to us on things. And so I think to some degree, this constant connectivity that we're experiencing right now, which is a more extreme version of what we already had going on as people kept their phones on and had their computers at home at night is potentially kind of hurting people's mental health and work-life balance. Fascinating. 
Does this constant pressure to stay connected and this diminishment in work-life balance add to burnout and affect performance in the workplace? I think it does. And this kind of gets back as well to the, the things that managers ask their subordinates, but also the things that we ask our coworkers and our colleagues. Because at the end of the day, it's really hard for people to say no to the things they're being asked. If you're asking people to respond to something after hours, if you're asking them to stay late, people really find it hard to say no. They feel this obligation to sort of prove that they're the ideal worker and that they're always on. And particularly right now when people are concerned about their jobs and feel fortunate to have jobs, they feel a lot of pressure to show that they are working hard from home. And so all of that can contribute to burnout. And we can unintentionally push our subordinates and our colleagues in that direction by emailing them things that we could either save for the workday or things that aren't really urgent right now. And they feel obligated to respond to those things and to work on these things, even though maybe they could use this time better for their own mental health or could use some time to sort of decompress. So a manager who's working late might send an email because it's top of mind with no expectation of a response and might think to themselves, well, they don't have to reply right now. They can get this when they come in in the morning. But in fact, they're causing potentially an undue amount of stress on that subordinate to demonstrate commitment or that they're available and without even realizing that the manager is affecting that work-life balance. Exactly. And that's in a few different ways. You know, your inbox fills up in the evening and all of a sudden you feel stressed if you're checking it. You're also sort of demonstrating that these norms of keeping a balanced nine to five schedule don't apply to you. I once received an email from someone that was stressing how everyone needs time off and everyone needs to find ways to maintain work-life balance, but it was at like 6 a.m. on a Sunday, which just felt like it completely undermined the message that was being sent. But yeah, so I've, I've also seen recently people having these little signatures that say, I have kids and the best time for me to actually get to my work and send emails is, you know, in the evening, but I don't expect you to reply to this. So kind of acknowledging that just because I'm sending this email now doesn't mean I expect you to reply. I think it's a really nice way to show that this is, this is not to put more things on your plate in off hours. Now, speaking of workplace interactions of a different sort, you've studied behaviors surrounding romance in the workplace. What have you found about expectation versus reality in those who attempt a romantic approach toward a coworker? Yeah, so it all comes back to the same sort of fundamental finding that it's harder for people to say no to things than we think. And so that's true when we're asking unethical and inappropriate things. It's true when we're asking people for help, although in that case, it often ends up okay. But it's also true when we're asking people out on a date or making romantic advances on a coworker. So what we found is that when we ask people to either reflect on their own experiences, having asked someone out who wasn't interested in them, or being asked out by someone who they weren't interested in, people have very different recollections of those experiences. So the person who's asking someone out or who asked someone out and it turned out they weren't interested in them thinks that person found it really easy to reject them. They were rejected and they assume, you know, that was no big deal for that person. But the person who recalls that experience and having to reject that person actually says, that was really hard. It was hard to say no. It made me feel really uncomfortable. And then I had to engage in all these kinds of behaviors to cope with that discomfort. So I found ways to avoid this person and I confided in other people. And it really had the sort of all these ramifications that the person asking the other person out 
didn't recognize. So we've seen that when we've asked people to recall their experiences, and then we've also experimentally assigned people to imagine being in a situation where they either asked someone out and that person wasn't interested, or they had to reject someone who asked them out. And once again, we see even when you randomly assign people to condition, people imagine that it's going to be a lot harder to say no to someone who's asking them out than the person who's asking someone out thinks it's going to be. Has your research uncovered any general difference between the ways that men and women perceive such interactions? So it's been really interesting because when we ask these questions, not surprisingly, we find that women are like three times as often have been in the situation of being asked out by a coworker they weren't interested in. So women are much more likely to find themselves in a situation of having to reject another person who's interested in them at work who they're not interested in. But it turns out that there's no fundamental gender difference in our ability to appreciate the sort of pressure we put on someone else when we're asking them out. So if we control for people's previous experience, then we see that men and women are actually exactly the same when they try to imagine how uncomfortable they might make someone else when asking them out if that person wasn't interested in them. And women are just as bad at getting into that person's head and realizing it's going to be really hard for that person to say no to you. But we see a gender difference and we see that women tend to be better at this because of their previous experience. So if they've had this experience before, which women tend to have, then they're better at recognizing. Actually, when you ask someone out, it's really hard for them to say no. Fascinating. What about the power dynamic we were speaking about earlier and the effect it could have if somebody's higher in the organizational chart or maybe even has direct report over the person that they're approaching? Yeah, there's been a lot lately in the news about people who have had to step down or have been fired because of romantic relationships with their subordinates. So we saw the McDonald's CEO, we saw Katie Hill, the congresswoman, and a lot of people sort of say, these are consensual relationships, right? What's wrong with a relationship between a boss and a subordinate? Can't they just manage this themselves? But in fact, the research that we've been talking about suggests that it's not as simple as that, right? So if already, even if you don't have a power dynamic going on, you don't appreciate the pressure you put on somebody else to say no to you if you ask them out, right? And in fact, some research shows we're more likely that instead of saying no, we'll actually go out with someone we're not interested in because it's even harder to say no to them. So that's even without this power dynamic, but then you add this power dynamic onto it and all of a sudden, you know, your boss is asking you out it's really hard to say no. It puts you in a super uncomfortable position. And as we talked about earlier, if you're in a position of power, you're particularly bad at recognizing the pressure that you're putting on other people. So it basically exacerbates all these dynamics that are already there. And another point there is that we often think of the beginning of a relationship as where consent happens. So you might say the problem with these relationships is that a boss asks a subordinate out and they can't say no, and so they initiate this relationship and it's not really consensual. But lots of people will say, actually, we were super into each other in the beginning. You know, both people were equally excited about this relationship. And we don't tend to think about then what happens as the relationship progresses. Do both people feel equally free to exit the relationship? And that's another place these power dynamics come in. So if one person just has so much more to lose by ending the relationship, then again, it's not really truly consensual. I can imagine in designing studies, there are some ethical concerns. How have you approached trying to study this without causing any harmful interactions between the subjects? 
Yeah, it's a good question because, and I'm more used to sort of just putting people out there and having them do the thing I'm studying. So for example, when I, you know, I, I mentioned when we were studying favor requests, we just had people go out and ask people for favors, right? We, they just asked people for money, asked to borrow their phones, asked them to do things for them. Similarly, when we studied unethical behavior, we would just have people go out and ask people to do unethical things, believe it or not. We had them go into libraries and ask people to vandalize a library book. It was a fake library book. No actual library books were vandalized, but we came up with something that seemed pretty unethical and we had people just go and ask it. But in this case, it's such a sensitive terrain. You can't just have people go out and ask people out who aren't interested in them or go and sexually harass people, for example. So we've mostly relied on using these sort of imaginary vignette studies or recall studies, both of which have their own problems, but they kind of work together to sort of offset the issues with one another. But ideally, we've talked in the future of doing something like some sort of speed dating study where we can actually have people reject people within this context where they're expecting it and then ask people, how hard was that? And ask people on the other side, how hard do you think it was for that person to reject you? Fascinating. And then since you began studying workplace romance, the Me Too movement has changed the public conversation surrounding power structures, consent, and romance in professional relationships. How have the events and the coverage surrounding hashtag Me Too shaped your research? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see this all happen because we wrapped up our two studies, our recall study and our imaginary vignette study right before Me Too happened. I mean, the, the timing was uncanny. It was like we finished our second study and everything about Weinstein just hit right after that. And so it's been really interesting to watch the kinds of narratives that have played out after this that have kind of added to how we were thinking about our research because there's kind of two narratives going on that completely map onto the perspectives we were studying. So for example, when the Aziz Ansari story kind of broke, that was a huge one because it was this gray area where one person was saying, I felt really pressured. I felt like I couldn't leave. And the other person was saying, I had no idea that you felt that way, right? I really thought that this was a mutual situation. And so you kind of saw all these articles of men and examples of men being surprised to realize that sometimes women go along with things they don't want. Sometimes they feel really pressured by requests that you don't realize feel like pressure. And then there was sort of another narrative going on of women talking about in this, for example, there was the article in the New Yorker that went viral, the cat person article about another sort of gray area and a woman who goes along with things that she doesn't really want to, but kind of feels like it's, it's harder to remove herself from the situation than to just go forward with it. And so there's kind of this other narrative of the other perspective, lots of women saying, I have gone along with things that I didn't want to because it was just easier to have sex with someone or, you know, agree to go on a date with them rather than make it awkward and say that I really wasn't interested in the end. So you kind of saw these two perspectives playing out in the media right around Me Too. So given that this fraught dynamic can exist, and in the Aziz Ansari example, someone can be in a situation where outwardly it seems that two people are having a nice time, and one of the parties is oblivious to the fact that internally the other person is feeling pressured and doesn't know how to communicate that, what can we do to try to avoid and prevent these situations? Yeah, I think there are a few things that have already started that have sort of gained in prominence through all these discussions that continue to be true. So one is 
the idea of enthusiastic consent, which has been around for a little while. And that is that you want the partner to be enthusiastic and you want to make sure that you're sort of monitoring for any sign that they potentially aren't, right? Checking and double checking and making sure that person is actually on board. And we've seen, you know, in the sort of fallout of, for example, Aziz Ansari and even Louis C.K., which is a very different example, but in both cases, you know, they had these comedy specials where they addressed the situation. So there's this weird parallel. And in both cases, they talked about, I learned that just because someone says they're okay with something doesn't mean that they are. And my friends learned this along with me. And so I think there is sort of just a recognition that yes isn't oh an enthusiastic yes is not the same as you know a yes I'm just kind of going along with things. That's one part of it. And another part, another point that I like to make is that I think people have an idea in their head that they should just go for things. If you want it, you know, it's a very American thing too. Maybe even Canadian. There's the Wayne Gretzky quote that you miss a hundred percent of shots you never take. Right. So it's a very sort of North American way of thinking that you should just go for things all the time because what do you have to lose? But I would kind of dial that back, especially in the domain of romantic advances, where it's not just about what you have to lose if this person rejects you. It's also about what that person has to lose if they have to go through rejecting someone, particularly if it's a coworker or a boss or someone they have to continue to work with. So I'd say another sort of point is not to always just go for it. You know, if you have reason to believe someone might be interested in you, maybe that's good advice. But if there are no signs someone is interested in you, the whole just go for it way of thinking is probably counterproductive. So taking the extra step to play the tape in the other person's point of view seems to be helpful or or to force yourself to examine empathetically the situation that you would be putting someone in, regardless of or separate from the external emotional state they seem to be displaying? Absolutely. So trying to get into their head and understand how, how they might be feeling and also trying to gather as much evidence as possible before making a move. So asking around, finding out if this person is dating somebody else, kind of doing a little extra legwork instead of just going for it just because you want to. You've also studied consent of a different type. In this case, I'm thinking of so-called voluntary searches conducted by police. How do people's expectations compare to reality when faced with an inappropriate request from a law enforcement officer? Yeah, this has been a really interesting project because consent searches, searches that are done just by a police officer saying, can I search your whatever it is, and someone agreeing, are the vast majority of searches that police officers conduct. So we think of like police officers having to get a warrant all the time, right? And people being like, oh, you come back when you have a warrant. But in fact, over 90% of searches are done just by a police officer asking and someone agreeing. They don't have to tell the person that they're allowed to say no, but the person is allowed to say no legally. And in fact, hardly anyone says no to these search requests. So for example, when my co-author Rosanna Summers and I reviewed some search data, we saw that, for example, in one data set of traffic stops, 99% of people agreed to let the police search their car, even though they could have said no. So if over 90% of searches are being conducted this way and 99% of people are saying yes, it doesn't feel like it's truly a voluntary thing to agree to. And so we were interested in looking at whether these same dynamics that we've been talking about, about how hard it is for someone to say no, and how on the outside looking in, we don't realize how hard it is for people to say no, 
if that played out in this context as well. And so we've been running some studies where we've been trying to sort of mimic the police search context in the lab. And we've brought participants in and we've asked them to search their phones. So we have a research assistant go up to them and say, before the study begins, can you please unlock your phone and hand it to me? And I'm just going to look through it and search for some things. And what we do is we either have people who are imagining that situation. So we say, imagine you were in the lab and you were, and someone asked you to do this, what would you do? Or we actually ask them to do this. And what we find is that when we say, imagine you were in this situation and you were asked to unlock your phone and hand it over to a research assistant, only about a quarter of people say that they would do this. So the vast majority, about 75% say, I would say no to this. There's no way I would hand over my phone. But in fact, when we ask people in reality, almost 100% of people agree to do this. So only a few people actually say no to this request. So what we show there is that the same kinds of dynamics are going on. You don't realize how hard it is to say no to someone in the moment. And so this almost seems to be a twist on your earlier research where in the previous example, managers will underestimate the likelihood that a direct will say no to them. In this case, the subjects are underestimating their own ability to say no to an event that they're forecasting. And perhaps the police officers, I don't want to speak for them, are not surprised when people don't say no. They, they actually expect compliance because perhaps of the power dynamic. We thought that as well. I mean, we wondered, are cops surprised by this, right? If they're getting 99% compliance, are they, do they go up to people and they're just like, I just expect you to comply? Or are they surprised? But actually, when we wrote a New York Times article summarizing these findings and we put it on Twitter, we got responses from people saying, I was a cop. I used to stop people and I couldn't believe the times that they would agree. You know, they would have incriminating evidence or they would have cocaine in their trunk. And I would ask them to search and they would just agree. So it seems like at least some cops have even been surprised by this. So it kind of does potentially mirror the other studies, but it definitely adds this additional element that even when you're imagining what you would do, you're often wrong about that. Now, I can imagine that some of our listeners could be curious as to the effect that race or geography might have on this disconnect. Would you expect these findings to be consistent across different communities? Yeah, that's a really important question. So the studies that I just mentioned, we started out doing them at Cornell in the labs there. And so the majority of our participants were white or Asian and majority female. So we were really curious about whether this would replicate in African-American populations, particularly male African-American populations. And so we have done these studies at the University of Chicago as well, where they have a downtown lab where they have a different sort of demographic sample. And we found that the same findings do replicate even when you're looking at across different samples. So we had a predominantly male African-American sample in that particular study at the University of Chicago, and we had almost the exact same findings. They're a little bit smaller. Let's return to the workplace. In a different study, you outlined the way that managers can shape employee emotional reactions to failure. You suggest that when a direct has failed, managers try to encourage guilt rather than shame. Why is it that guilt is constructive and shame destructive? Yeah, so I'll quickly just backtrack and sort of connect it to the other work just to give a sense of how it sort of follows with my line of research. So 
Guilt and shame are both self-conscious emotions. And I keep saying, you know, it's so hard for people to say no. We don't realize how hard it is for people to say no. But the underlying reason for that is because of self-conscious emotions, because it's really awkward and embarrassing and we feel guilty saying no to somebody. And so there's this sort of tie-in with these self-conscious emotions and they can lead us to agree to all sorts of things. Some things are good. We actually, it's a good thing that we agree to help people, right, more than we expect and more than they expect because we feel so self-conscious saying no. In other ways, it can be negative. But this other research looking at how managers can sort of use self-conscious emotions because they are so powerful kind of delved into getting into the details of what specific self-conscious emotion would be most effective from a managerial perspective. And so, as you mentioned, the ones that we contrast were guilt and shame. And so the difference between those is that guilt is this really productive emotion. It feels bad, but it drives us to change whatever we did that made us feel bad. So we focus on the specific thing we did, the other person that we harmed, and most importantly, we focus on how to rectify the situation when we feel guilty. Shame, on the other hand, can be elicited by the same kinds of events. So if we do something wrong, we can feel guilt or we can feel shame. Most of us feel a little bit of both, but shame is much more focused on the self and feeling like I messed up, I'm a bad person, there's nothing I can do to fix it, and kind of retreating from the situation instead of trying to actively rectify it. And so our argument in the paper that you're referring to was about how when people make a mistake at work or when they fail to meet some sort of goal, they can either feel guilt and try to fix it or they can feel ashamed and kind of just try to hide away and avoid it. And that whatever managers can do to push people more in the direction of guilt will be better for the organization. Interesting. I'm curious if a guilty response to doing something wrong versus shameful would encourage folks to self-report their own mistakes with greater consistency and thereby minimize the negative effect of those mistakes. Is there any evidence to that? I don't know of specific evidence, but I think that that would be a definite possibility. So if you feel guilty about something, you want to fix it. And part of that is bringing it to light. So showing someone like, this is what happened. I just want to make it better now. When you feel ashamed, you want it to go away and you don't want other people to see it necessarily. And so I think you would be less likely to actually share a mistake you made if it just makes you feel like a horrible person and you think everybody else is going to think you're horrible because of it. So in the paper, you outline a set of organizational characteristics that increase the likelihood that employees who experience failure go down the road of guilt versus shame. What are those organizational characteristics? Yeah, so the big ones are, first of all, the extent to which people's outcomes are individual versus sort of team-based or interdependent. Shame, as I mentioned, is very tied to feelings about the self. So if someone's outcomes are all about individual competition or individual milestones and you don't meet those, you're more likely to feel ashamed because it's all about you. On the other hand, if you have these team outcomes and people are kind of trying to pull together to reach some sort of goal and you let that group outcome down or you fail the team, you're more likely to feel guilt because it's all about, you know, what you've done to other people. So that's one thing. Another is how much autonomy people have. So shame tends, people who feel ashamed feel like there's nothing I can do anyway. 
so I'm just going to feel bad about myself. Whereas guilt is really tied to a sense of, I can fix this, I can make it better. So the more that people have autonomy in their role to actually fix things, to change things up, the more they're likely to experience guilt because then they can actually try to do something about it. And then finally, the kinds of feedback that employees are given. So you can give sort of broad general feedback, like, I don't really love the way you do this thing in general. Or you can give very specific feedback. When you did this, this was the effect it had. And again, that serves to push people more towards guilt or more towards shame. Because if you're talking about these sort of broad strokes, you're just not very good at this thing. That's going to lead people to feel shame. They're like, I'm just not good at that. If you're talking about a specific thing that can be changed, they feel guilty. I messed up, but now I have an idea of what I could do in the future to to fix that. And so outcome-based feedback would be less effective then because it forces the employee to do more work to try to figure out how do I get a different result versus specific behavior-based feedback that would say, when you did this specific action, this was the result. And it seems like it can guide the employee to the actual moment when they could have made another choice and, and to be able to correct that for next time. Yeah, definitely. So something like, you know, I just think you're not very good at sales. What is someone going to do with that? Except just feel like I'm not very good at that. You know, it's the rare person who's going to actually try to make things better from a statement like that. But when you ask for something like this, people balk at that because of this. All of a sudden, oh, okay, I'll ask for it differently next time. I messed up. Both times I feel bad. This was one of the main reasons we wanted to write this paper was that, you know, there's a desire to not make people feel bad in organizations, right? It's all like pumping people up and making them feel good. But when people fail, they should feel bad. It's part of failure, right? We don't have to feel good when we mess up. But it's a more constructive form of bad, like, oh, I I did that wrong. I feel bad. Next time I'm going to do it better, as opposed to the kind of bad where it's like, oh, I'm just not good at this. I feel awful. So it, it, it seems that managing employee emotions in this way is good business sense because it increases the performance of your workforce and probably leads to better business outcomes. What ethical obligation do managers have to account for employee emotional reactions beyond the difference that it makes to the bottom line? I mean, I, I would say it kind of relates back to what we talked about with uh, work-life balance and mental health, because we do know that people who feel guilt and who then rectify situations and, you know, make things better and feel like they have some autonomy and control actually do feel better about themselves. And if you're always feeling ashamed and feeling like you're not good at something every time you fail, and again, failure is an inevitable part of, of work and life it really can burn somebody out. And I'd say managers have an ethical obligation to take care of their employees' welfare as well. So before we close, I'd love to sort of tie this all together. You know, it seems like in much of your work, the expectations that individuals hold about their own behavior and the expected reactions of others are consistently inaccurate. Does it appear that people update their mental models based on experience to become more accurate forecasters over time? Or are some of these misconceptions fixed in some way in our psyches? Yeah, that's a great question. And people ask me that all the time, in part because a lot of these contexts, you know, we have a lot of experience with. So if you take, you know, my work on help seeking and how surprised we are when people agree to help us, I mean, how many times in our lifetime have we asked for help? And had somebody else ask us for help and know how hard it is to say no. So it's really interesting that despite this lifetime of experience we have, that we don't always update in the moment. 
Right. So we see a little bit, for example, in the romantic advances studies that people who have had this experience are a little bit more attuned to another person's perspective. So there is something to be said for having had these experiences, but that doesn't always mean we draw on them in the moment. So there are some interesting studies on hot-cold empathy gaps, and I think a lot of that applies to these sorts of contexts. It's actually a really hot emotional experience when you ask someone for help. It feels really uncomfortable. You're kind of overwhelmed by worries about rejection and embarrassment. And you're not paying attention to that other person's perspective and not realizing how awkward they feel saying no. And it relates to these hot-cold empathy gaps because they've shown that if you're not in that exact emotional state or visceral state that someone else is in, it's really hard for us to try to stimulate that experience if we're not in it. So one of my favorite examples of this is if you just finished dinner and you're totally full and someone asks you, you know, are you going to want these leftovers for breakfast? A lot of us would say, ugh, I can't even imagine eating this for breakfast. That sounds totally unappetizing, right? But then you wake up the next morning and you're in that visceral state of being hungry again. You're like, oh, the cold pizza actually sounds kind of appetizing. But in the moment, we're just really bad at simulating that. And so that's part of the reason. It's so hard for us to draw on our experience in the moment of having been hungry before. We've all been hungry before. It's that the difficulty we experience trying to simulate an experience we're not immediately in, like the experience of being hungry if we're not hungry, if we've just eaten, is one of the reasons we find it so hard to predict what someone else is going to do in a situation when we ask them for something or when we're putting pressure on them. So given what you just said, I'm wondering if you have any advice for what listeners might do to minimize these fallacious beliefs that we seem to hold. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a few things we need to do. The big issue is that we're all in our own heads, looking out at other people and not realizing that they're kind of looking back at us and our role in a situation. So I'd say step one is finding ways to get out of our own heads and sort of take a third-party perspective on our role in situations. So I'd say that one way of getting out of our own heads is to do a little exercise that comes from research on marriage and conflict in which you adopt a third-party perspective on yourself and your partner for just a few minutes, you know, every few months. And that helps you in the moment to have that practice to draw on that third-party perspective when you're in a position where you're actually interacting with another person. You can kind of get out of your own head a little easier. So Eli Finkel has done these studies where he's had married couples just do this little exercise for a few minutes every few months where they imagine the last time they were in a fight from a third-party perspective. Imagine you were an observer watching the two of you fight. And he finds that people who just do that little bit of an exercise actually don't suffer a dip in marital satisfaction that couples typically see in the years after they get married. And I would argue part of that reason, he talks about it as a self-regulatory tactic that you, you kind of learn how to regulate your feelings a little better by taking that perspective. But I'd argue the other thing that you're doing is recognizing all the things that you say that the other person is responding to. You're seeing yourself, instead of being in your own head, just seeing that other person, you're seeing the things that you say that then that other person reacts to. And so you're kind of recognizing your role in a situation. So as much as we can kind of get out of our own heads and sort of take that third-party perspective, I think we can better see our, our impact on other people. 
And the other thing is, as we talked about earlier, actually then getting into that other person's head. Like how then do the things you say actually impact that person? How does that actually make that person feel? And a lot of that is trying to stimulate that person's experiences, which is not easy for us. But as much as we can sort of draw on our own experiences, recall a time when a boss asked you to do something, how comfortable did you feel, you know, saying no? As much as we can draw on our own previous experiences and try to use those to simulate that person's feelings, I think the better. Well, Vanessa Bonds, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being on the Present Value Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Bernardo Espinosa, Maria Castex, and me. I'm your host for this episode, Greg Wool. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pamungo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value. <laughs>